Let's begin with prayer. Father, we are grateful for this rain. We are grateful for every drop. We are grateful for each and every drop that falls upon this dry ground and replenishes it with nutrients and with moisture and causes uh, the, the plant life to, to flourish. We're thankful for it, Father, and we recognize that, that rain is a gift and that rain is, is, is your gift to us, and we are thankful for it. We also realize that every single word that we have in this sacred text, in this, this Bible, Father, is also a blessing, that when it falls upon our parched hearts and minds and souls, we too flourish as we drink in every word. And those words, Father, recognizing not only that they are inspired, but they are words that help us to be complete as human beings and to help increase and make more profound and deep our understanding, not only of ourselves and this world that we live in, but especially of your character and nature in all of the universe. Thank you for it, Father. And because that's true, we pray in the name of Jesus that you will give us eyes that see and ears that hear. Bless us in this study, Father. Bless us profoundly in Christ's name, we pray it. Amen. Sometime earlier this year, a fellow by the name of Ken Willman walking his dog along a beach when he spies this, this funny shape laying right there at the water's edge and it's, it's amber-colored and it's, it looks like a rock, but it's not really a rock. And he's kind of curious about it. So he walks over and picks it up, and he's looking at it. And it's about seven pounds. It's about a seven-pound chunk. And it, it feels weird, so he puts it up to his nose to smell it. And as soon as he smells it, he throws it down because it is the worst thing he's ever put up to his nostrils. It turns out that this is something very, very special. And he's kind of curious about it, so he takes it home, does a little bit of research, and finds out that what he has brought home from the beach is a piece of, of ambergris. It's a piece of ambergris, which is just a fancy word. It's a scientific word for whale vomit. What he has picked up is a seven-pound chunk of vomit from a sperm whale. And that's why it smells so terrible. But get this. Here's the thing. This thing smells terrible when it's fresh, when it's newly minted. It smells terrible. But after a while, after the sun's rays, the sun has touched it for a little while, it goes from being one of the worst smelling things to one of the best smelling things, one of the most organic, fragrant things that you'll find on the earth. And that's why it is so prized by perfume makers. There was, at last count one perfume company in France that was offering $50,000 for this seven-pound chunk of whale upchuck. Imagine. I mean, no kidding, right? Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't know French, but I, you know how you say ambergris in French, right? Chanel. <laughs> That's how you say it. There's a funny thing that happens... When a, a human being, in all of their, their sin, is touched by the Son, S-O-N, Son of God. There is a tremendous blessing that comes. You, you go from being a sinner 
to, to something very beautiful in the eyes of God. And the New Testament describes it a lot of different ways. In, in Acts chapter 11, you're called a Christian because you believe in the Christian doctrine and you're a follower of Christ Jesus. You're called a saint which means that you're in the process of God making you a holy human being. You're called a disciple, which gives direction to your life and form to your life because you're following in the footsteps of Jesus. But there's another term that the Bible uses to describe your relationship to God, your relationship to Christ, and it is the word slave, which is kind of troubling. Most of the English translations, because it's such a distressing, it's a vexing term, to refer to us as slaves in the 20th century in the Western world in the 21st century is that a lot of the English, not all of them, but a lot of the English translations have taken that word doulos and made it servant because it's more palatable. But the word doulos means slave. And the reason that that word is used is, well, one of the things that we note about the, the number of times that this word is used in the New Testament is that one of the most common ways that a Christian is referred to in the Bible is as a slave of Jesus of Nazareth. A slave of Jesus of Nazareth. If you go to Romans chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul says this letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. The New Living Translation, one of the few translations that keeps it pristine using the word slave. In uh, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1, you have these words. This is a letter from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. In Revelation chapter 1, the very first verse, you have God giving this message to his slave, his doulos, John, to deliver to his douloi, or his slaves, that is, the church. You have James, who is the brother of Jesus. And James writes a letter, a general epistle to the church. You know it as the letter of James. Now, James could have written to the church, and everybody knew who James was. He could have addressed it to the church from James, the brother of Jesus. He would have got a hearing for that, but that's not the way that he addressed it. He says in chapter 1, verse 1, this letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude is a full brother to James and a half-brother to Jesus. He could have done the same thing. Jude chapter 1, verse 1, this letter is from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Now here's a question, big question. Why in the world does the Bible use such an offensive word to describe the relationship that a, a disciple has with Jesus? Why in the world use this word slave? Sarah Rudin in her book, Paul Reimagined, writes that a slave in the first century pagan world was a nobody and nothing outside of his usefulness to his master, which meant that when you were a master and you had a slave, that, that person, he or she, was your property. You could do with that person whatever you wanted to do. In essence, you were property. You were chattel. That meant the, the master could do with you whatever he wanted to do because you belonged to him and you were not really seen as a human being. Now, this is not the way that the New Testament uses this term when it refers to our relationship with Christ. In fact, I, don't, I really don't have time to unpack this this morning, but suffice it to say that everywhere where Christianity in all of the centuries, in all of the cultures, in all of the eras of the world since the cross of Jesus, wherever Christianity has bumped up against slavery in this world, Christianity has been that force that has dissolved it out of existence. 
That is not the way that the Bible uses. The Bible is not pro-slavery in the sense of degrading human beings. But the Bible is pro-radical obedience to Jesus. So why does the, the New Testament writers, why do the New Testament writers use this term over and over again to describe themselves and to describe disciples of Jesus? Why slaves? The reason is the term slave describes the intensity of our commitment to the greatness of His Lordship. It is a term that describes the intensity, the radical intensity the no-holds-barred, the 110% sold-out commitment to the greatness of His Lordship. Listen to these words from Romans chapter 6. Paul, in talking about what it means to be enslaved to sin and enslaved to God, says, don't you know, verse 16, that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your what? Allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 17, Peter says to the church, live as God's slaves. Now, the thing that always gets debated, and it gets debated all over the place in the secular world in all of the ages, is whether or not man has a master. I quite frankly believe that every man has a master, whether we admit it or not. We are enslaved to something. And the power of the gospel is this, that it frees us from our enslavement to whatever that master might be. The overarching term of it in the Bible is sin. Frees us up from that killing master to the one who will never oppress us and to the one who in fact will give us abundant life what that term slave does do for us though and clarifies for us it answers that question of who is the boss the measure of a disciple of jesus is seen in the degree by which jesus controls his life now the question that i want us to think about this morning is whether or not in our life Christ is recognizable as a master. Now, He might be recognizable as a Savior because we talk about how Jesus saved us through the gospel, through His death on the cross, through His resurrection, through our faith in Him, through our sins being washed away. He's our Savior. But is Christ in your life, if nobody ever heard you say a word, if they did not know that you are a Christian, would they be able to see the difference? Would they be able to see that Christ is your master? in this life that's the question in luke chapter 17 i'm going to read the passage that roger read for us just a minute ago because in it is some insights in how i think jesus is revealed as the master of all of our lives jesus is telling this story he's telling this parable he says suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep Will he say to the servant, when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down and eat? Won't he rather say, you, servant, slave, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink, and after that you may eat and drink? Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, so you also, 
when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. A lot of things, let me give you three. First, one of the most basic teachings of being a disciple of Jesus and recognizing that slave aspect, that radical commitment to the greatness of His Lordship is that we recognize everything belongs to Him. Everything belongs to the Master. When you realize that you are a slave, when you recognize that fact that you are a slave of God, that you're a slave to Christ Jesus, you are surrendering your right to ownership. You are the one who plows the Master's field. You are the one who is tending the Master's sheep. The fact that you belong to another is distasteful to an American but it is fundamental to the Christian faith to recognize that he is master and you are not. In fact, Paul was having that, you know, it's not just really a 21st century Western world issue. Paul's having that problem in a cosmopolitan place of the first century like Corinth, where everybody was trying to discover what it meant to be a human being and they were chasing down every kind of, 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 of uh, experience that the world of the first century A.D. had to offer. And there were all kinds of problems that that was bringing into the church. And Paul had to remind the church in that first letter to the church in Corinth that you are not your own. You were bought at a price. And the implications of that verse is that you're not your own and you don't own anything. Everything that you are and everything that you have comes from the Master. It's your food every day. The food that you receive is, is a gift from God. And you recognize it as such. And, and the shelter that you live under, even your children, even your children are not your own, but are to be raised in a way that is pleasing to God. Your time, your time, all of your, your resources, all of, all of your inclinations are to be given towards Christ as the Master. All of these things belong to Him. And slaves recognize that they, <clears throat> that they are accountable to use all of these things that they've been blessed with in a way that is pleasing to the Master. That is one of the things that slaves got. Slaves got that. They understood that when they were entrusted with something, whether it was a field that had to be plowed or sheep that needed to be tended or the Master's, whatever it was, it was to be done all of those service, all of that obedience, all of that work was to be done in a way that would put a smile on the master's face. Slaves got that. Slaves recognized that everything in their life was reoriented because they were under new management. And when we begin to recognize that that's the relationship that we have with, with Jesus, that He's not just our Savior, but He's our Lord. And that it's not just about the fact that He has saved us and that you know, we are, you know, we, we're accepting and, and in full intellectual agreement with the philosophies of, of, of the New Testament, but that He actually owns our lives, which we've given to Him in faith, and we understand that we are under new management, then our lives begin to be reoriented. And over and over again, the Bible says that when your lives are reoriented under the Lordship of Jesus, you begin to look like Him. And that things like habitual sin begins to be diminished in your life because you're developing other tastes. 
And because of the power of the Spirit in your life, you are beginning to be empowered to grow out of all of that, that sinful, disastrous, destructive, uh, 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 addictive behavior that, that, that was a, a, a sign of your life and, a, and, a, and a, a marker of your life before you became a Christian. Well, not only do you recognize that everything belongs to the Master, but you release the desire for recognition. There's a passage uh, in John chapter 3 that I think about a lot. And in, at the end of this chapter, Jesus and, and John have some disciples. And they're both baptizing, and they're baptizing where there's a lot of water, and there's this debate that, 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 that kind of develops between the disciples of John the Baptist and Jesus over, you know, baptism. And finally, the disciples of John, they go back to John and they say, you know what, we're kind of sick of this. You know, we thought that we had kind of this, this front row seat to the kingdom of God, but everybody is going to that guy over there. Do something or you're going to lose all of your disciples. And John says something that's very profound. He says, you know what, I recognize my position. I recognize who I really am in relation to Jesus. This is not a competition over who's going to be number one. He has my allegiance. Uh, he is the, the bridegroom and, and the church is going to be his bride, and I'm just the, the best man at that wedding, and I'm the guy that's happy when the bridegroom and the bride get together and they're happy together. That's my happiness. And then he says something that is, I, I think about it all the time. He says, he must become greater and I must become less. He must become greater and I must become less. You know, the greatest obstacle to fully embracing our identity as slaves of Jesus of Nazareth is our inability to get over ourselves. That's a huge problem. It is. Getting over ourselves sometimes becomes this, it seems like this insurmountable obstacle. There's a commercial on television. In fact, there's a whole series of, of Ford commercials that are about and or or. And how and is better than or. And there's this one commercial in particular where these people are coming down from a, a bed and breakfast and they, they get to the bottom of the stairs and they go, I'm glad that we chose bed and breakfast rather than bed or breakfast. And then the camera pans out and you have all of the people that chose breakfast sleeping at the breakfast table with their face in the cereal bowl. You know, sometimes we do that when it comes to Jesus. We want Him to be our Savior, but we don't want Him to be our Lord. We've not gotten over ourselves sufficiently enough to allow Him to be that Master. We have not gotten over ourselves sufficiently enough in recognizing who we really are, even though we recognize it or not, it is a reality, but we haven't recognized that reality that He is the Master and that we are the slave. It is not when we are baptized into Him and confess our faith in Him and repent of our sins and choose Him as the direction we go. It is not Jesus as Savior or Lord, but Savior and Lord. He is our Savior and He has always been Lord. And sometimes the, the problem that we have in our, our attaining greater levels of, of discipleship and achieving a greater, more profound spirituality is that we haven't come to terms with who is really boss in our life. Disciples who understand the slave aspect of their commitment to Jesus have no problem in saying, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. We are unworthy servants. Let's say that together. 
We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Because Christ is gracious, He does bless us. He does bless us. But one last thing. Remember, obedience is not an option. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Over in Luke chapter 6, in Luke's account of the, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? It's a good question. It's a good question. The only reason that Jesus would ask that question is because people have not recognized that they are slaves to Him in terms of a radical, intense commitment to the greatness of His Lordship. Have not recognized the fact that as Lord, He dictates the parameters and the steps of your life. As Lord and Master, He is the one that you are seeking to please with the kind of life that you live. Once you become a Christian, you become a slave with the Lord and a master of your life. When, when you become a slave, obedience is not this, this option. It becomes just part of the definition of that relationship. We wake up every morning and we ask our master, what is it that you want us to do today? That's our daily agenda, to be pleasing to God, to live according to His will, to do the work that He gives us to do, to go to the place where He sends us. And to live the life that is, that is just full of kingdom values. That's why we describe ourselves not just as Christians and not just as saints and not just as disciples, but as slaves of Jesus of Nazareth. And our challenge in this entitlement culture where it's about what I can get, what I can get, what I can get, what I can get, is to get over that and to understand that the call to discipleship is a call to a commitment of obedience. A commitment of obedience that, that, that views the Christ as master in every word as His command and every, every mission our duty to fulfill as His disciples and as His Christians and as His people and His saints and His slaves in this community. And to do it in such a way and to do it in such a way that people are able to observe the blessing and that abundant life and that, that fruit of the Spirit that comes issuing forth out of our life, the peace that passes understanding, the inexpressible joy, all of those, those blessings that entail salvation and conversion and commitment to the kingdom of God, to see that in us. To see that in us. You know, Jesus left heaven as you know, took on this form as a man, and not just as a man, but as Paul says in Philippians 2, one who was completely given to the will of God, which meant that he would die, and which meant that he would not only die, but that he would die on a cross, the most repugnant, nauseous, upsetting, nauseating way to die, cruel, brutal way to die in the first century A.D. And because he did that, Paul ends that particular part of Philippians chapter 2 by saying because of his obedience, because of his faith, because of what he accomplished in, 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 in being a servant of God, God has now exalted him to a place where he is called Lord. 
And it is that Lord who knows exactly what it means. Who knows exactly what it means to be faced with a, a will and with a word and with a command and with a duty of God that is so difficult that it actually brought out sweat drops of blood in his distress and anxious spirit and in prayer right before the cross. But he humbled himself and became obedient in order to die on the cross so that you and I might have the option to choose life and to choose life as a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth to be a slave to God. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. And the invitation this morning is, is, is to reorient your life not just if, if you're already a disciple of Jesus, to understand by deepening your commitment to His will that you are, you are a slave, that it's a radical commitment to the greatness of His Lordship, that you obey every, every word, every command, that they're not an option. You are a slave and He is the Master. Or it may be to reorient your life by humbling yourself and taking the, the greatest gift that could be given to you, and that is the relationship with God being restored for all of eternity. God's Spirit being put inside of you because Jesus of Nazareth became that kind of a servant to God to the point of death, even death on the cross. And you can do that this morning by choosing Him and confessing that He is your Lord and having your sins washed away in, in, in baptism and having His Spirit come into your life at that baptism, helping you to, to live out the ramifications of discipleship every day of your life. If that describes you this morning, some of our shepherds are going to be right down here at the front. Come down and talk to them now as we stand and sing together. Bring.